Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. We are continuing studying through our series on what is a healthy church member. What does a healthy church member look like? We've spent time talking about um, what the basis for church membership, what is the biblical basis for that. I encourage you to go onto the website and to listen to that if you get a chance. Um, I also have original copies of the discs in my office if you want to take it home. If you don't want to get on the website and download it, you can also uh, come to my office and I've got every sermon disc of every sermon I've preached since I've been here. It's quite something. I'll tell you what, I need to get rid of them. Y'all need to come grab them. Uh, but I've got those for you. We've talked about the biblical basis for it. We've talked about uh, kind of what that means for us as Christians, what church membership means. And now we've been walking through what a healthy church member looks like. Because if we're going to represent Christ to our community, we need to know what we're supposed to represent. How are we supposed to look? As members of Fairhaven Baptist Church, how should you be living and looking in the community? And so we've been walking through that bit by bit. I mentioned to you that uh, a lot of what I'm talking about comes from a book by a, a pastor named Thabiti Anyabule. I'm not going to ask you to spell that. Uh, Thabiti is a gifted pastor, uh, preacher, and he wrote a book called What is a Healthy Church Member? Uh, it's a small little bitty book. I can show it to you in my office. I'll be glad to loan you my copy if you want to read it, or you can buy it for yourself. It's not very expensive. But a lot of what we're talking about is, are things that he addresses in his book, but they're ultimately biblical things. And so this morning, what we're going to focus on is a healthy church member is a committed member. Now listen, we hate talking about commitment. Don't talk to us about commitment. We love to be very loose in our commitments. We don't, we don't want to commit too heavily to any one thing. We hold it very loosely. But one thing the Bible teaches us about Christians is that one thing we should not hold loosely as Christians is our church family. We shouldn't hold loosely the family of believers that we belong to. But the Bible tells us that a family of believers that we belong to is vital to us. It is necessary for our growth. It's necessary for ministry. And it's necessary for missions. And so if we're going to be healthy church members, one of the things we need to realize is we need to be committed to one another. We need to be committed to each other. And so I'm saying that there's probably already welling up within some of us in our hearts like, I don't like that word committed. I'd much rather just say I'm a... I'm a member, but let's keep the whole committed part. Uh, let's dull that down a little bit. But I want to show you from the word of God how vital it is that we be committed to one another as a church family. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you know that I have just preached on this text not long ago. You may still have the notes in your Bible. If you're taking notes in your Bible, if you're taking notes on your own in a notebook, you may already have that. But I just... just preached on this text not a while ago, so I'm not going to hit it ultra deep because we've already done that. I'm just going to kind of give us a summary again, and then let's, let's apply it. Let's talk about what that looks like in church life. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 19, and let's start there. Paul, uh, well, uh, oh, okay, I, uh, it may be Paul, it may not be Paul. The author of Hebrews writes this, and the author of Hebrews has been showing us how Jesus is supreme to the old covenant. That the new covenant in Christ's blood is supreme to the old covenant of the law under Moses. The whole, the whole reason the author is writing is to show that Jesus was supreme uh, than all the prophets. He was greater than all the prophets who came before him. Uh, showing that Jesus was greater than the angels. Showing that Jesus was greater than Moses. 
showing that Jesus' sacrifice was greater than any temple sacrifice that had ever been offered. The author's trying to show us that the new covenant under Christ's blood was far superior to the old covenant under the law of Moses because Jesus fulfilled what nobody else could. Jesus could actually be completely obedient and faithful to the will of God like no one had ever been able to do before him. So Jesus was supreme. His sacrifice was supreme. And what Jesus purchased for Christians is supreme to anything else that you could ever have in this world. He says, therefore, brothers, so he's talking to, to Christians, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So he puts a therefore at the beginning of this verse, which tells us he's referring to what he wrote about before. Well, what was the author writing about before this? He was talking about the forgiveness of sins that is found through the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. That because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we have something we didn't have before. That as Christians, we are able to approach God in a different way than we did before, he tells us that because of what Christ has done, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so let's think about it this way. In those days, the king would have his palace and people could come to him if he beckoned them to come. But one thing you didn't do in those days was go to the king without him asking you. You with me? The king actually had the right to put you to death if you came into his presence without his petitioning. By the way, when you read the story Esther in the Old Testament, you'll understand why she was so apprehensive and told everybody to pray for a long time before she went in. Because she knew that she wasn't being summoned, and there's a possibility that the king could put her to death. So you didn't just approach the king without his beckoning. What's interesting is the way that God describes, here I'll go back. What's interesting is the way God describes how we as Christians relate to God after we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. He says, because of what Christ has done, we have confidence to enter the holy places. What holy places? Well, God's presence, right? Into his throne room. We have the ability as Christians to enter and let that blow your mind for a second, that as sinners, we have the ability to enter into God's presence. But then he says, not only enter into God's presence, but he says, enter into the holy places with confidence we enter in. When you enter in with confidence, it means you know that you're going to be received well on the other end. All right. <laughs> There were times I did not enter into my parents' presence with confidence. There were times that I, I entered into their presence with a lot of apprehension. Well, why was that? Because I didn't know what I was going right? to, I had done something wrong. I didn't know what I was going to get on the other side of it. And so I entered in with great apprehension. 
The author of Hebrews says when we come into God's presence as Christians, we enter in with confidence. Why? Because we know that on the other end is a God who is not counting our sin against us anymore, but lovingly welcomes his children to come to him. Uh, see, we don't go in like Esther going, oh, I hope he doesn't kill me. I hope he doesn't strike me dead. We enter in into God's presence because of the blood of Jesus. We enter in with confidence going, we know we're going to be well received by our king. And just one will do. Just one will do and I'll move on. That's all you get. Just give me one and I'll keep going. But if you don't do it, I'm going to get stuck. So to keep the train rolling, you got to give them. That'll mean something to you at some point. Maybe it's when you're having lunch, but it'll hit you that God not only allows you to come into his presence, but he says, come into my presence with confidence that you are loved and cared for by the king, not counting our sin against us. And just notice, he says, we enter with confidence not because of our good deeds, but because of the blood of Jesus. We don't enter with confidence because we're like, man, I finally got this life put together and I got it. I, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I'm... Our ability to come into the presence of God with confidence is because the blood of Jesus is over us. That our sin has been washed away. And we enter with confidence because we know the king isn't sitting there awaiting to read off a list of all the things we've done wrong. But because of the blood of Christ, we're able to come as those who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. That's where the confidence comes from. It doesn't come from thinking we're great. It doesn't come from thinking we got life put together. Because just so you know, we're constantly going into God's presence with all of our brokenness and junk. But we know on the other end, we find one who receives us as his children who loves us. Richard Sibbs the Puritan put it this way. He said, when we sin and we think about approaching God, Satan comes alongside of us and presents God to us as the angry ogre in heaven who simply wants to strike us with a lightning bolt. And we do this sometimes when we say something and, and everybody goes, oh, watch out, don't get struck. I don't want God striking you with lightning because of what you just said or did. I mean, I know we say it jokingly, but just so you know, as children, the promise of God is he won't strike us that way. Because that's how Satan presents God, the Father, to Christians after they've sinned, is as the ogre in heaven who simply has a hammer of justice. You know how God presents himself to his children? Not as the angry ogre in heaven, but as the Father who tells his children who have sinned, come, come to me. Oh, that's good news. That's the confidence we enter in with, not because we're great, but because the blood of Jesus is that good. The blood of Jesus can cleanse us of all of our sin, no matter how bad your background has been. No matter how much you've sinned it up over your life, guess what? The blood of Christ can cleanse even the most vile sinner. You want evidence of it? Look at the Christians in the room. Look at what God forgave all of us. And if he can forgive us, he can forgive you of your sin. We're told that this is the new and living way in verse 20, that he opened for us, not that we opened ourselves, that Jesus opened up for us through his sacrifice, through the curtain. And I've gone into that before of the curtain in the temple area, 
there was the Holy of Holies. That was where no one could go except the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for all the people at one time after he'd offer sacrifice for himself. So in the temple, right before you got to the Holy of Holies, there was a massive curtain, a massive covering that kept you from going in. And it was massive. And it was a reminder to the people that this is what sin does. It separates us from God. This curtain separated the people from being in God's direct presence. And when Jesus died on the cross, the gospel writers tell us that in the temple area, when Jesus breathed his last, we're told that in the temple area, the curtain which blocked the entry into the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom right down the middle. What, was the gospel, what were the gospel writers telling us? That because of Jesus' death on the cross, he was opening up access to God that we could not have because of our sin. That's how powerful the death of Jesus was on the cross. That's how mighty his sacrifice was as he tore the temple curtain, showing that we now have access to God through Jesus that had never been given before. It was a new and glorious way to the Father. That was through his flesh, we're told in verse 20. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest, right? Jesus is described as the great priest over the house of God. That means he's the mediator between God and man. Jesus was the one interacting for both of us. We needed someone to represent us before God. And guess what? Jesus is that man. Now, there had been priests before Jesus, but all of them had one thing in common. They rebelled against God, every single one of them. Didn't matter how gross or little, every single priest who had come before Jesus had sinned in some way. But because of what Christ did, he was now the great priest who was over the house of God, who had never sinned, who had never rebelled against God, and he was different from all other priests who had come before him. On the basis of that comes verse 22. Because of what Christ had done comes verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. There's going to be three exhortations that the author gives us that all start with the phrase let us. So this is the three let us statement. The first in verse 22 is an exhortation by God to us as Christians. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This means that we are to approach the throne of God, which is possible because of what Jesus has done. We can approach the throne of God with a true heart, a sincere heart, a genuine heart, a heart that is now upright as opposed to rebellious against God. In full assurance, in certain confidence of faith, the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. So when we come to God, we come with upright hearts that have been made new by Christ in certain confidence of faith, believing that God is who he says he is and that Jesus is the sacrifice we desperately need him. He tells us that our hearts are sprinkled clean. Just so you know, that's great because I didn't have that before Jesus. My heart was not clean before God. Neither was yours. 
Our hearts were dark and sinful and black with, with the stain of sin. And because of what Jesus did, because of his death, our hearts have been sprinkled clean. So this assurance of faith, this full certainty of faith is not because of anything in ourselves, but rather because through Christ, our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed. He tells us that with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what it means to be really forgiven by God. That you realize that when God forgives you, he gives you a clean heart and he washes your body. Not only is everything inside Right, motivated by a new love for God, but then our outside, the way we externally show that is changed. Fruit comes from it. We're not just changed inwardly and then look the same on the outside. We are changed inwardly and it responds in outward obedience that looks different than what it looked like before we knew Jesus. And so he says we have this because of what Jesus has done. He has sprinkled our hearts clean. He has washed our bodies. So he says, let us draw near to God. So as a command, God gives you as a Christian, guess what you're supposed to be doing regularly? Drawing near to God. Why? Because you've been cleansed by Christ. Your body has been washed. You've been given a new heart with new affections. Draw near to God. Don't chase after the world. Draw near to God. Because of what Christ has done, you can now do that. Oh, that's good news. Because I couldn't do that before because I was dead in my trespasses and sins and now I'm alive. And he says, now draw near to God. See, our faith is not a passive one where we sit back and just go, okay, let go and let God. No, our faith is an active pursuit and drawing near to Jesus constantly, every day, because the world woos us away. The author of Hebrews says, because you've been sprinkled clean, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, draw near to him. Number two, in verse 23, he goes on and says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That means we're going to have to remain steadfast in what we say we believe. The confession of our hope is the substance of what we believe about Christ. It's to profess that Jesus is the basis for our hope. We're to hold fast to that. What this tells us is God's telling us that our natural inclination is not to hold fast to these things. But we as Christians must hold fast, cling to, continue on the same course of the confession of our hope and to do so without wavering. Why would that be necessary? What might cause people to waver in the confession of their hope? Cancer diagnosis. Financial problems. Kids acting up. Work going terribly. Persecution. We're constantly bombarded by things that tempt us to say, do I really believe this is true? Do I really believe there's a God and that he reigns on high and that Jesus Christ is his son who has died for me and rose again from the grave? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that I've been promised eternal life, that one day I'm going to dwell with God forever after this life is over? You know, because we're pulled in so many different directions to say, is that true? Because of what Jesus has done, the author of Hebrews exhorts us by God to, to, to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. 
The reason why we hold fast to the truth is not because we intellectually conceive of it to be true. We hold fast to the truth because he who gave us the truth is faithful. He's not letting it slip. He's not going to let it fall. We're able to hold fast to the truth and to the confession of our hope because God is faithful to us. And then finally, number three in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to good works. This is where we need to stop for a second because this gets to the whole idea of being a committed member of the church. Because all this sounds good, right? Sounds good to be able to draw near to God, right? Draw near to God with a, with a heart that's been washed clean by Jesus. Hold fast to the confession of your hope because God is faithful. You know where it starts to get messy? Is when God starts implying, actually explicitly telling us, that we can't do this fully on our own. You can't do this at home by yourself and accomplish what's being said here fully. You can do it at home too. But here we're told in verse 24 that this is not an individual exercise. This is a family of God exercise. We don't just do this on our own. We do it together. Together as a church, we draw near to God, confessing our sin and realizing that we need him that he is the only hope that we have. Clinging, holding fast to the confession of our faith, that we do that together as Christians. When we as a church gather together, we're lifting up God's word as the truth and we're holding fast to it together. We're pushing each other to love the word of God more and to cling to it. But then finally, the third let us is, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This is one of my, I've told you before, this is one of my favorite verses because I love the picture that these words give you. Because in, in my verse, it just says, stir it, let us consider how to stir one another up. And that's a, great, that's a great way to put it. But I like what the original language points to more clearly. In the, in the original language, that word to stir up one another is actually a word that means to irritate. It means to incite in someone. It means to provoke someone. Now listen, <laughs> I know how to do this really well. I am a provoker. Uh, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. And, and you can ask my brothers, I can provoke. I can poke and prod. I can say some things just to get their mind going, no, that's not right. I'm good at inciting. I can incite responses out of people pretty well. I'm good at irritating. Hey, hey, easy, easy. All right. Listen, Ed, listen. I, I could line up some folks for y'all too. I tell you what, I'm just I'm being honest, but I could line I could line some folks up coming here right now gladly. Take their Sunday off, come in here and talk about how you irritate them. But the word here is not meant in a negative way, right? Like we think of it. We think of provoking in a negative way. We think of irritating. We think of inciting. Anytime we hear those three words, we think bad thoughts. That's not what's meant here. The, the call of God on Christians is that we would come together often as a family and we would poke and prod each other towards what? Not to make each other angry, right? Not to be an irritant, not to be a bother, not to be mean. We are to irritate, we're to incite, we're to provoke for what end? And, don't forget the first part, 
love and good works. See, if you leave the love off, you can do good works while you're being hateful. You know, right? If you just have love and you leave off good works, you could just do that loving thing but never show it in any way or demonstrate it. So here he says we're to provoke as Christians. So when we get together, every time we gather together as Christians, which, by the way, shouldn't just be on Wednesdays and Sundays. We should be getting together for lunch during the week. We should be getting together at each other's homes and studying the Bible together. We should be doing all that great stuff together. But we have our major times to come together, like Wednesdays and Sundays. And when we get together, what are we supposed to be doing? We are supposed to be doing all three of these lettuces. All three of these are what we should be busy about. When we come together as Christians, we should be drawing near together with a true heart of full assurance. We should be drawing, we should be holding fast together the confession of our hope, what we believe is true. And we should be considering how we can provoke, irritate, and incite each other to love better and to do more good works in the name of Jesus. So when we get together, we're not... I hope you know when you get here on Sundays, you're not just supposed to sit here and listen to me talk because that's miserable. My family will tell you that is a miserable thing to do. You're not here to do that. You're here to uh, draw near to God together, hold fast to your confession what you hold to be true, the truths of Jesus Christ, and you're supposed to be poking each other to say, you need to walk more like Jesus. You need to walk more like Jesus. You need to love this person. You need to love better. You need to show that. We get together. We push each other to look more like Jesus because guess what? Apart from the family of God, you will not do that naturally. You will drift away not to love but to self-centeredness. Not to community and family of God, but to individuality and self-dependence. What God wants to remind us is as Christians, we're not lone wolves. We're a family. And together we accomplish these things. Right? Because we need that constant provoking and irritating to follow closer to Jesus. That means in order to be a healthy church member, you have to know the people you're provoking. We don't just show up and generally start provoking. You got to know who they are and in what areas of their life they need to be provoked. How do you know how to provoke me to look more like Jesus unless you know me? And you know the things I struggle with and you know the things that are strengths of mine. How do I know how to provoke you unless I know who you are? And I'm around you regularly to keep on, because just so you know, provoking it once. You don't just do it once. you got to keep on provoking. Because after you stop provoking, then we start to get numb again. Then someone's got to come along and poke us again. So we need that constantly. We need to constantly have that stirring up of one another, which means you got to be together in order to stir each other up. So in order to be a healthy church member, you have to be committed to one another as a family. You have to be committed to one another. That's the only way we can accomplish this. He goes on and says, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, right? Because that's necessary for proper provoking. Being together regularly as a church family is necessary for proper provoking. We can't stir each other up rightly unless we meet together. And I, you know what encourages me? This was written in the first century when Christianity is just starting to boom. Isn't it interesting to you that we're already in the first century, Christianity has just started to boom, and guess what they're already dealing with? 
people who start forsaking meeting together. I don't really need this. I'm good by myself. I got it. So what we're experiencing now, 2,000 plus years later, is nothing new. In the first century, they were already starting to fill the pool of back to individual life, away from the community of faith, away from the family of God. And guess what God exhorts them with? Keep drawing near together. Keep holding fast together. And keep considering how to stir each other up, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Why? Because we don't naturally drift towards God, right? We naturally drift away but because of what Christ has done, we can stay faithful in those things. Gives us new hearts. And we're told that some were already in the habit of neglecting to meet together. But he says that shouldn't be the way the early church should exist. And that shouldn't be the way our church exists today. We can't hold this loosely. We need each other to do these things properly. And so a committed member is a healthy member we do it so that we can encourage one another. And he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Jesus' return. Can I help you out? Are we closer or farther away from Jesus' return than when this was written? Right. So if we're closer, then guess what we actually need to be doing more of? These things. Drawing together holding fast together, stirring each other up together. So this thing has actually gained more momentum even since when this was written because we are closer to the day of Jesus' return now than we've ever been in history. So guess what God knows we need? We need to be provoked more. We need to be stirred up more. We need to draw near more. We need to keep on doing that. Don't drift away. Don't get disconnected. You need the church family. Don't start drifting away on your own because you can't properly do these things that God commands us to apart from the family of God. We need each other in order to accomplish what God has told us to do. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling that pull, like, man, you know, I, my bed is awfully comfortable on Sunday mornings. It seems more comfortable on Sunday morning than any other time in the week. Man, basketball starts in like an hour and a half. Kentucky's not playing, so it doesn't really matter. But for those of you who do care about places like Tennessee, I mean, I guess you could watch it. Easy. But one thing we realize is that we are prone to drift away. And if you're feeling that, I want to encourage you by God's word today. Even through all those things, don't stop fighting to be committed to these people, to be committed to one another, even in those days when you feel like it. Listen, folks, there are some Sunday mornings I would rather just hit snooze and stay home. But guess what? I need y'all. So I get up and I come. Some days I'm ready to go. Some days you gotta, I'm launching out. I'm ready to go. Some days I got to pull. I'm going to get pulled out. But they're both because I need you guys and you need me to be able to do what God says here. For our good, that's what we need. Okay, so let's wrap it up. Let's, let's talk about ways in which we can do this. What does a committed church member look like? You're asking, how do I apply this? How do I do this tangibly? First of all, we need to understand that in order to be a committed church member, we need to attend regularly. Listen, I, and this isn't like, oh, if you miss one, we're gonna come find you. This is a, as often as you can, you're together with the family of God, right? That this is a place you wanna be. 
And these are folks you want to be with and you want to study the word together and worship together, that you must do that regularly. Listen, folks, I know from my own personal life, when you start to get detached from that, you start to drift away from God too. And so a committed member is one who attends regularly, makes it a priority. Number two is someone who seeks peace. A committed church member seeks peace in the family of God. This is important because this means we can't just show up and do whatever we want. We show up and we are seeking to be peaceful. We're seeking to bring peace everywhere we go. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Paul tells us, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's what we pursue as a church together is peace. We don't come to stir each other up to anger or stir each other up to animosity or division. We come here to stir each other up to peace, to love, and to to dwell with each other well. Number three, a committed church member edifies others. We see that in this text as well. He says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." That's what the word edify means. It means to build up others. Well, how do you do that? How do you show up to church ready to build other people up? Well, it means you come in, and I come in with the heart that we're not here to be served on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays or when we got. It's not here to say, what do I get out of this? That's not the mindset of Christ. The mindset of Christ was not to come to be served but to Serve. So that's, that's what it means to edify others. It means to come with the idea that I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve others and to build into them what is for their good. Because just so you know, that ain't always easy. Sometimes I show up and like, what y'all going to do for me today? No, it ain't about that. It's about how can I serve my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If everybody showed up with that mindset, woo, members meetings wouldn't take so long. And we wouldn't fight about color of paint. I'm, I'm not saying we do that now. I'm just saying, thank God we don't do that now, and let's not fall into that. But that's what happens. In churches, when it's not about edifying others, guess what? It gets drugged down with all the unnecessary things that divide and hurt. Instead of showing up saying, how can... Yeah, sorry about that. I have my microphone. But how can I serve rather than be served? If everybody did that. that's a place you'd want to go to. That's a place you'd want to be a part of when you're able to serve together for the good of one another. Next, it means a healthy, committed church member is one who warns and admonishes others. It means we speak the truth to one another in love. What does that look like? Well, it means we help each other to avoid the pitfalls of sin. We steer each other in the truth of God. I don't know about you, but I need that all the time because sometimes I can convince myself that all the things I do are right when, in fact, they may not be. But how do I know that unless someone's bringing the truth to me and saying, Jason, think about that? That's how we do it. We, We admonish each other. We speak the truth in love, helping to avoid pitfalls in each other's lives, those things that we may not see, that we may have spiritual blind spots that other people can point out to us. Next. A committed church member is one who pursues reconciliation. Because we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, like we've seen in Hebrews chapter 10, that means as a healthy church member who's committed to the body, we, sh- we strive to, rep- to repair broken relationships. Any breaches 
in our relationships, we seek to restore those. We pursue reconciliation. Because we've been forgiven, we seek to forgive others and to heal broken relationships. And we do that as quickly as possible. We don't wait. We know that if a relationship is broken or, or broken or fractured, we want to see reconciliation as quick as possible. And so we bring that to each other. We reconcile to each other. And that may mean you have to forgive somebody who's hurt you and offended you. Next, a committed church member is one who bears with others. Means to be patient. Means to be long-suffering with somebody. Means you're going to have to put up with a lot of people's junk in order to be committed to the church. Because someone's going to drive you crazy. I'm going to do it at least five times. This means to be patient and long-suffering. We hold up under the weights of disappointments and discouragements and frustrations and loss and attack and slander and offense. We hold up under all that. Listen, in our day and age, that rarely happens. A lot of times when, when disappointments or frustrations come or, or struggles arise, we leave. I want to encourage you. The way we display the faithful love of Jesus to us is not by running when disappointment comes, but by being patient and long-suffering with each other. Lord knows I need you to be patient with me, and I need to be patient with you. We need that, because guess what? There's not really any other place in the world we find that. Where else can you go and find people who are ultra-patient with everything you do? That's what the church is supposed to be, a place where we endure together. That means we're going to have to bear with one another, even through frustrations and disappointments and offense. Two more. A committed church member prepares for the ordinances. The ordinances of the church are baptism and Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances we have as a church. We believe God has ordained those two acts as we continue to follow in fellowship with Christ. And so what this means is as a committed church member, you're going to rejoice in the baptism of new believers. When you see a new believer baptized, you're going to celebrate your heart out. Because there's someone who used to be lost and dead in their sin who's now alive again. But it also means that when we celebrate Lord's Supper together, we as committed members of the church examine our hearts to see if we have any offense between us and God or us and another person. It means we prepare with seriousness to approach the Lord's table together. And so a committed member of the church is one who takes serious and prepares to celebrate the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper together. And then finally, a committed church member supports the work of the ministry. What this means is as a committed member of this church, you, you give your resources, your time, your talent to furtherance of the gospel. That we, we bind together and use our talents and resources, our time to display to the lost world what Jesus looks like and how glorious he is. Thabiti says this in his book, and I'll end on it. The local church is the place where love is most visibly and compellingly displayed among God's people. It's where the body of Christ is most plainly represented 
in the world. See, we can't do this at home. Can't do it on our own. The love of Jesus is most plainly and compellingly seen when folks like us gather together and draw near to God and hold fast to the confession of our faith and stir each other up to love and good works. When we do that together, we are displaying to the world what they can't find anywhere else. That's the love of Jesus. That's how powerful his sacrifice is, is it can turn sinners like us, selfish, self-centered, me-centered people into those who care about each other, who love each other, and are willing to sacrifice for each other. Oh, the world needs to see that. And you can't find that at the YMCA, and you can't find that at your job. The only place you can find it is in the family of God. So my petition to all of us, I'm talking to me too because I'm a member of the church too, is to exhort us, encourage us to don't hold our church membership lightly. Don't hold it as, as something that's not important or all that vital. But know that the price Jesus paid for us brought us together into a family and we're able to show a lost world how beautiful the love of Jesus is. Oh, let me exhort you. Be a committed part of God's family. You need to belong to a local church. If it's Fairhaven, you need to be here and you need to invest in each other and you need to support each other and encourage one another and push each other. If you're a member of another church, you need to be there and you need to support and encourage and love there. If you don't have a church home, you need to come here. Be a part of this family. But more than anything, you need to trust in Jesus, who is the only hope we have. He is the only one who can forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to trust in him and become part of the family of God that is oozing with joy and love. May we demonstrate that towards each other so the lost world sees that they need that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. And Lord, I thank you for your goodness towards us. And Father, I pray that as a church, you would help us to hold your truth as sacred to us. God, that we need you. We need you to forgive us of our sin through Jesus Christ. We need you to cleanse us. And God, we need you to walk daily after you. God, we can't do it of our own strength, but because of what Christ has done and because of your Spirit's work in our hearts, God, you show us that we are able to not only be forgiven, but God, to display your love and forgiveness to a lost world. And Father, in a world where we hold things so loosely, in a world where we hold commitment as a dirty word, help us, Lord, to demonstrate to each other the love and faithfulness you've shown us. That God, even when we drive each other crazy, even when we step on each other's toes, Father, we do it in love and we do it as a family. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to see that we are not simply individuals, but we're the people of God. We're the family of God. 
So Father, I pray this morning that people in this room will see very clearly that they are sinners who have rebelled against God. But your son came. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again so that we might be forgiven. That we might be set free from the bonds of sin. And Father, I pray that every person in this room will trust in you. God, I pray that you would draw people to yourself and show them that what they need more than anything is not better works, not to try harder, but to simply fall at your feet, confess their sin, and ask for your forgiveness. And God, I thank you that your word tells us that anyone who does that, you will forgive them of their sin. Father, as Christians, I pray you'll help us to not view this community of believers as just something we can add on to our lives as an extra benefit. That we wouldn't view our church as simply something we can have or we can leave. But Father, we would see that this family together is a family you've chosen for us to be a part of. With all of its warts and all of its victories and all of its love and all of its struggles, God, you brought us to this family and I pray you'll help us to endure together. Bearing with each other, stirring each other up, loving each other, bringing the truth to each other, being there for each other. God, I pray that you will help us to see that church family is vital to our lives as Christians and help us to love and nurture these relationships you've given us. Father, I just thank you that as a Christian, I'm not alone, but I have brothers and sisters who love you and love me too. Oh God, may we display that to the ends of the earth that others will see their desperate need for you and worship you. God, I pray that you'll help us to respond this morning. For your glory, we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.